Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chasley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Dow drop. Investors take stock after Monday's 1,000-point fall. Style but little substance. President Trump's trip to India ends without major deals. And good karma. Intuit snaps up credit karma for $7 billion. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to our first movers all around the globe. I can tell you investors certainly today hoping for some Mardi Gras-style momentum after the worst one-day trading session for U.S. stocks, never mind the rest of the globe, in two years. What we're seeing right now for U.S. futures is a bounce back. Nasdaq futures at this moment up around three-quarters of 1%. That said, of course, we'll be gaining back just a fraction of Monday's 3% plus loss. History, though, suggests that big pullbacks like yesterday tend to be followed by snapbacks of around 1% the day after, with the S&P 500 specifically higher overall a week later. I have to say, though, this situation incredibly tough to gauge. Uncertainty about the ongoing spread of the coronavirus increasing rather than lessening overnight. The details coming shortly. But in the meantime, United Airlines and MasterCard are the latest U.S. multi nationals to warn on profits. United shares have turned around pre-market, but MasterCard still set to see a 1% loss at the open. We'll see a true change in sentiment, I think, when investors begin easing back on safe havens, and we're simply not there yet. Ten-year yields remain close to record lows once again today. Gold, though easing a little bit here from seven-year highs. Oil, slightly firmer but a long way to go, as I mentioned, in terms of the demand that we've seen for these safe havens. What about over in Europe, though? The situation remains delicate. Italian stocks in the red after Monday's 5% slide. Authorities still trying to control the coronavirus outbreak there. In Asia, we saw some buying in Hong Kong and in South Korea, but Chinese stocks did lose some ground. The Nikkei, of course, playing catch-up after being closed on Monday's session. That fell over 3% today as the Japanese government made a serious of recommendations to try and contain the virus outbreak. Let me get you the latest here on the coronavirus. New clusters emerging in Italy, South Korea and Iran. That's the headline. Italy has put in place travel restrictions and halted the Venice Carnival. Authorities say 283 people have been diagnosed with the virus. Seven have died. Questions, of course, remain about the handling of the outbreak as governments around the world struggle to halt the contagion. Japan's government, as I mentioned there, making several recommendations for businesses to try and contain the outbreak, including phased sessions of working. In China, meanwhile, only 30% of small businesses have reopened despite government measures to try and support them. David Culver is in Beijing once again for us. David, do we have any sense of what's stopping these businesses. I'm sure clearly people want to get back to work, but at the same time, workers will be frightened. Consumers, I'm sure, will be frightened. What's the holdup? comes down to logistics, Julia. I mean, the reality yeah. is you still have hundreds of millions of people within these lockdown zones 
they can't leave, they can't get out, and they can't come back to the places like here in Shanghai where perhaps they usually are working most of the year because of when this happened. The timing was a perfect storm in many ways. I mean, all of this leading up to the Lunar New Year, the Spring Festival, where the mass migration of people, the largest each year, going back to their home provinces. So now many of them still there and in place, and a lot of the factories can't come up to speed. A lot of the businesses simply cannot reopen. So that's where things come uh, as far as the slowdown in reopening. And then the other thing is the customer base. I mean, some of these businesses, even if they were to reopen, simply would not have the flow of consumers coming in to actually buy their products or use their services. And that's something we've noticed just walking the streets here. So what are they doing from the top up? Uh, We know that Premier Lee, with the state council today, came out with some big changes essentially making it easier for micro, small, and those medium-sized businesses when it comes to repaying the loans, trying to ease some of the penalties, and in fact, waiving them in some cases and deferring them for several months so that they can get back on their feet and, and start to kind of find their, their ground again. And on the other side of things, they're easing things for the taxpayers in some cases. In Hubei province, the epicenter of all of this, Julia, some of those taxpayers will uh, not have to pay the value-added tax. That'll essentially be waived outside of Hubei and other places here in mainland China. They're going to reduce it significantly. So they're trying to make it easier for these household businesses, these small businesses in particular, to weather what has been an incredibly difficult period. And we know this is something that Uh, President Xi Jinping himself has made a priority. I mean, not only are they looking to contain this virus, but even with the World Health Organization just 24 hours ago coming out to say, look, containing the virus is one thing, getting back to business is another thing, and that likewise is essential. It was interesting hearing that from the WHO and essentially endorsing China's containment efforts, but acknowledging things have to come back online. But in doing so, you've got to manage risk because as soon as they start reopening and things come back to this new normal, if you will, there is that chance that the number of cases could surge again. Yeah, I mean, the whole world is struggling with what the appropriate response here, what quarantine measures, what limitations. It's it's clearly not just China that's grappling with this, though clearly, given population size and what we've seen there, it's, it's a huge challenge. What about big event spaces? I think the one that comes to mind here that, that everyone will be recognizing is, is Disneyland in Shanghai. I know you got as close as you could, though, that and big event spaces like this remain closed. As close as we could, Julia, which uh, really brought us right up to the front gate, and that's about it, and then going around a bunch of empty parking lots. It's deserted. I mean, it's been shut down here at Shanghai Disney for 30 days, but it's not only this park that's feeling it. Go to neighboring territory in Hong Kong. The Disney Resort there likewise shut down, and they're expecting it could be shut down for maybe another month or so. So that's two months total. Disney earlier this month had projected that that would be roughly combined $280 million in loss of operating income for this quarter alone. So it's a significant hit and it's noticeable when you go to those parks. I mean, they're, they're desolate. Yeah, it's just erring on the side of caution here, I think. But to your point, logistics, the theory is good here. Putting it into practice and getting back to work remains a challenge. Great to have you with us, David. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's bring it back to markets now because we mentioned the stock price falls that we saw globally yesterday. Oil 
also taking a significant hit, sliding back into bear market territory on Monday, the worst day of trading for oil in over a month. Though we have seen a bit of stabilization today, but of course the volatility remains. John Defterius is in Riyadh. John, you and I have uh, debated endlessly, it seems, about the prospect of OPEC, OPEC plus members stepping in here to restrict output and shore up prices here. The Russians have remained reluctant. What are the Saudis saying? Because I know you've caught up with them there in Riyadh. Well, I tell you, when you're in Riyadh, uh, Julie, you know that saying, money talks. This is where oil talks, no doubt about it. So that shot across the bow that we saw yesterday, uh, that 5% correction, really resonated throughout the region. It's like a dark cloud, the coronavirus, uh, and it's keeping prices range-bound. So I asked uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, the new minister of energy, who's the half-brother, by the way, uh, of the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, if we need the extra 600,000 barrels to be cut, this was his compromise proposal, onto the 1.7 that they agreed on uh, last December and suggested with Russia in the mix, are they being too complacent within the OPEC plus because of the virus? Let's take a listen to his answer. Every issue in the world uh, which requires uh, attendance, I think the whole world needs to uh, pull its socks and pull its resources and uh, abilities to make sure that uh, everybody would be attentive, be it medical, be it financial, be it economical. So if you've covered Saudi Arabia for a quarter century like I have, this is the Saudi nuanced approach. He tried to broaden out the context here, uh, but uh, it was subtle but uh, clear enough to the Russians. Everybody needs to pull up their socks going forward, Julia. Uh, that's the message out of Riyadh today at a big uh, oil and gas uh, conference uh, in the capital. Yeah, subtle for everybody else, like a sledgehammer for the Russians. Has anything budged on the on the Russian side here? I know, naughty. Um, has anything budged on the Russian side here? Or what's the prospect of some of the Gulf states, perhaps, I'm talking the UAE, the Kuwaitis and the Saudis, perhaps, coming together here and saying, we'll go it alone? Well, uh, to your answer, because I posed that to... Uh, his Royal Highness Abdulaziz bin Salman, he said every OPEC plus producer will be responsive and responsible, thinking that the Russians will come along. He even said uh, we have technology, a WhatsApp group talking to each other. They're on the phone all the time. They just haven't made the decision yet. But he doesn't want to be boxed in like his predecessor, Khalid al-Fale, where Saudi Arabia is going to do anything to preserve that agreement. Uh, when I spoke to the new minister of energy back in September when he got the job, he said we cannot go at it alone. He doesn't want to be blamed for it breaking up, uh, but I think he's going to wait and come around and say to the Russians, really, it's just 600,000 barrels. Let's stabilize the market. John Defterius, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Now, U.S. President Donald Thanks. Trump says the coronavirus won't have a lasting effect on the global economy. We lost almost 1,000 points yesterday on the market, and that's something, you know, things like that happen. Where and you have it in your business all the time, had nothing to do with you. It's an outside uh, source that nobody would have ever predicted. If you go back six months or three months ago, nobody would have ever predicted. But let's see, I think it's going to be under control.
president spoke a short time ago in India announcing increased defense and security cooperation with New Delhi, though he does head back to Washington, it seems, with no major deals. He spent the day meeting with the Indian prime minister and a state dinner is set to begin in the next half an hour or so. CNN's Sam Kiley joins us now from New Delhi. Has this been more about the relationship, Sam, and great to have you with us than perhaps, as we said there, hopes for greater negotiations over trade in the future and, and major deals? More about the friendship, perhaps. I think this trip has been about burnishing the populist reputations of these two populist politicians. Uh, Narendra Modi facing problems at home, notably over a Citizenship Amendment Act, a complicated name for what is being described by its opponents as anti-Muslim legislation that has resulted uh, in riots and demonstrations across the country. Just yesterday, Julia, seven people uh, at least uh, were killed, including uh, one policeman, we understand from medical sources, hospital sources here, actually uh, shot with a firearm by uh, rioters uh, right as uh, Donald Trump was enjoying addressing a rally put on for him by Narendra Modi in uh, Ahmedabad of over 100,000 people. That has taken the gloss off things for Mr Modi, but in terms of the polished uh, relationship that they have. It's getting shinier and shinier by the day, it would seem, with uh, Donald Trump looking forward very much to this state dinner. Very pleased with the numbers that he says have turned out to see him and the announcement of a relatively small $3 billion arms deal with uh, India for the export from the United States of Apache, Apache and MH60 helicopters, uh, formidable bits of equipment that will add to India's already growing military capability. And one aspect of that that uh, Donald Trump also drove home is that he's, uh, well, they're forming a, a national, a national or international organization, sorry, of the Quad, including Japan, India, United States and Australia to take more interest, more control over joint policy in the uh, Indo-Pacific region, particularly to offset the growing influence of China, not only strategically, but obviously also commercially, with India, of course, being on China's doorstep, Julia. But no, no uh, great uh, trade deal struck yet. And indeed, uh, there was a lot of uh, indications that that would be the case anyway. Julia? Thanks, Sam, there. And I just mentioned uh, our viewers, you are looking at live pictures there of President Trump and the First Lady Melania, of course, arriving at that state banquet. The shake of hands there between the two world leaders. Melania wearing a beautiful fuchsia pink color, actually noticeable there. The beauty of that dress and the stark contrast with the background. Off now, of course, for that state banqueting dinner this evening. And we will bring you any further live pictures of that. But as you can see, the two leaders there shaking hands and hands raised together there. Seemingly a good relationship between the two leaders. All right. We're going to take a quick break here on First Move. We'll be back after this. Plenty more to come. Welcome back to First Move with a look at some of the stories making headlines around the world. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu paid tribute to Hosni Mubarak saying he led his people to peace and security. The former president of Egypt has died at the age of 91. His 29-year tenure ended in 2011 when he was ousted after mass protests. He died in a military hospital in Cairo. Cyril Vanier looks back at Mubarak's rise to power in Egypt. 
Mohammed Hosni Mubarak, a symbol of stability and moderation to his admirers, a symbol of dictatorship to his critics. Trained as a fighter pilot in the Soviet Union, Mubarak gradually climbed through the ranks, taking command of Egypt's air force shortly before the 1973 Yom Kippur War, when Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel. Two years later, President Anwar Sadat appointed Mubarak vice president. Six years after that, in 1981, he became president following the assassination of Sadat at the hands of Islamic militants. Mubarak was with Sadat on that dramatic day and only narrowly escaped the assassin's bullets himself. As president, Mubarak fought a long and bloody war against Islamic militants bent on toppling his regime. The struggle climaxed in 1997 when militants massacred more than 60 people, mostly European and Japanese tourists. In the wake of the attack, Egypt's security forces crushed the militants, while human rights groups accused the Mubarak regime of widespread torture and abuse. President Mubarak was a regular guest at the White House, and Egyptian troops made up the largest Arab contingent in the U.S.-led multinational force that drove the Iraqi army out of Kuwait in 1991. But friendship had its limits. Twelve years later, Mubarak declined to join President George W. Bush's U.S.-led coalition against Saddam Hussein, and he reacted coolly to Bush's calls for democratic reform in the Arab world. But under intense pressure from Washington, Mubarak began to ease his grip on power. In September 2005, Egypt had its first-ever multi-candidate presidential election. While his opponents, the Muslim Brotherhood, made some gains, Mubarak still held firmly onto power. That was until growing discontent over corruption, police brutality, and economic inequality boiled over on January 25, 2011, when a group of young activists using social media organized an uprising that took the regime by surprise. What followed was 18 days of mounting nationwide protests, calling for his resignation. Human rights organizations estimated more than 800 protesters were killed in clashes with police and supporters of Mubarak. But the tide had turned. The movement against Mubarak only grew. A military man to the end, Mubarak vowed he would not shirk his duty as president of Egypt. But on February 11th, he finally stepped down. And millions of Egyptians took to the streets in wild celebration. A year and a half later, a Cairo court handed Mubarak a life prison sentence for his role in the death of protesters during the uprising. Barely seven months later, an appeals court reversed that decision. And a frail Mubarak was set free with little fanfare or opposition six years after the uprising that toppled him. A dramatic final chapter for Egypt's modern pharaoh, who once loomed so large. We'll have much more on his life and legacy at the top of the next hour on Connect the World. For now, though, we're counting down to the market open, where we're expecting to see a bounce after Monday's steep drop around the world. Joining us now is Peter Oppenheimer. He's chief global equity strategist and head of European macro research at Goldman Sachs. Peter, great to have you with us. Last week, you. you guys were saying we were looking ahead and you were predicting a market correction because you said valuations simply had got ahead of themselves. We weren't pricing the coronavirus impact. Have we had the correction or do you think there's more downside to come? Well, clearly, as you say, there has been a correction now and I think that that's healthy as markets start to take a little bit more seriously the near-term impact and disruption that the virus has caused. I think there's still probably a little bit further to go. 
Uh, on the positive side, I don't think that we're at risk of seeing a sustained or deep bear market, uh, rather a, a reset given how high valuations were uh, before the beginning of this week and how much further earnings expectations are likely to come down in the short term. So to your point, you think we may see an interim bounce here as perhaps investors tip their toes in. But actually, if we rationalise the kind of economic impact that we could see as a result of, of the coronavirus, actually, it makes sense for us to be lower here, whether in the United States or, or whether in Europe. Yes, I think context is important. We have to bear in mind that last year, equity markets around the world had a staggering return. Most were up about 25%. And that was in a year when there wasn't really very much profit growth. So most of that rise really came from valuations getting higher, from PE ratios increasing. And so we started this year already with quite high valuations and strong expectations for the economy for this year. As the coronavirus has hit, a lot of people were looking back to 2003, the SARS uh, epidemic, uh, and thinking, well, it will be short-lived as it was then, and therefore we should look through it. But it's worth noting that, you know, since 2003, when SARS hit, the Chinese economy has grown more than sixfold. It's much bigger, much more influential. And of course, supply chains are much more integrated uh, for lots of industries and companies now. So although we think the economic cycle is still intact and we're reasonably optimistic about the long run, uh, I still think there's room for a little bit of a reset in terms of valuations and expectations in the near term. Are you comfortable about your predictions for the impact on the Chinese economy this year? To your point, that the relative scale of importance in global supply chains, tourism, is, is that much more important now than it was during the SARS virus? And a couple of weeks ago, Goldman Sachs came out and said actually that the relative impact on an annual basis won't be that large. Do you think mm. that needs revising lower too? Because that for me jarred. It felt too early to be able to predict. Mm. Well, bear in mind that the view that it wouldn't have that much effect on the annual growth rate uh, was based on the assumption that you would get a big hit in the first quarter. First quarter growth would be weaker, but uh, you get a recovery from a lower base in the second and third quarters. So the overall year wouldn't be affected so much. Uh, our economists have brought down their forecast from just around 6%, 5.9% to 5.5% for the year as a whole. But I think it's still reasonable to expect that this is a short-term hit to the economy in China and elsewhere, which weakens the first quarter, but from which there could be still a fairly decent recovery. Bear in mind that companies are... are, are um, grinding down their, their inventories, their stocks, they're using those up. So at some point, they'll need to restock, orders will go higher, and that will help to compensate for the short-term negative impact that we're seeing at the moment. I think part of the eagerness as well from investors to dip their toes back in is what we've seen in the past with this kind mm. of virus outbreak is an immediate snapback in the following three to six months and investors are afraid to miss that rally. What's your sense of whether this time will be different and is perhaps the bond market telling us something different from, from what the equity market's saying? Because rates there look very worrying. Mm. Well, of course, there's two ways of looking at this. One of them is that there are very few alternatives 
in terms of investment opportunities outside of equities that um, have valuations that suggest there's going to be a reasonable return. You know, as you say, bond yields are extremely low, difficult to get uh, a positive return from those for people who buy uh, and hold to maturity. Um, cash rates are, are close to zero, even negative in some parts of the world. Um, so equities are relatively attractive because as long as economies do grow, uh, profits and dividends will grow. And they do offer income as well. There's a reasonable dividend yield. And it's that lack of alternatives that I think continue to make equities look an attractive uh, opportunity set for investors, particularly when there are setbacks like this and when there are corrections. Having said that, you're right to say that bond yields have fallen again uh, to really very extraordinarily low levels, close to record lows in the US, uh, UK, many parts of Europe and so on. And in the long run, those very low bond yields are telling us something about long-term growth expectations coming down. Some of it is that long-term inflation expectations are also low, and that's a healthy thing. Uh, but to the extent that long-term growth expectations are also coming down, that will also reduce the long-term opportunities in equities. So I think yeah. that equities do look attractive relative to other asset classes, but people have got to be realistic that the longer-term returns are likely to be lower than we've enjoyed in recent years. So important to understand. Peter Oppenheimer, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for Thank that. You. Peter Oppenheimer there, Chief Global Equity Strategist at Goldman Sachs. Stay with us. The opening bell's next. To first move, I'm Julia Chesley, live from the New York Stock Exchange, and as expected, a bit of a bounce. We can see for U.S. markets after Monday's 3% plus pullback, as you can see. A few analysts warning, though, however, that it may be too soon to buy on the dip. You heard there Peter Oppenheimer from Goldman Sachs saying that he believes we could see more downside too. Paul Monica joins me now. Paul, a temporary bounce. It was a punishing day yesterday. It feels a bit too soon to call it here. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's obviously good news to see some buying on the dip. And it was a massive tip, of course, yesterday, Julia. But, uh, you know, we're still not necessarily out of the woods with regards to concerns about the coronavirus spreading as it has done to Italy and uh, Iran and uh, South Korea. Obviously worries about that, even though maybe things have stabilized in China. But the other thing to keep in mind, even with the sell-off yesterday, we were only halfway to a correction. The S&P 500, about 5% or so off its all-time highs from just a week ago. So people who've been waiting for this bull market that's been going on since 2009 to finally pause, we might need a correction or even a bear market. Yeah, and just to be clear, a correction normally 10% from recent highs, and we're only, well, actually less than half of that. And, of course, rapidly taking it back in the session today. It's going to be interesting to watch, as you and I say, as these markets, and we hear from more and more corporates perhaps warning about the coronavirus impact on the business. It'll be interesting to see how investors react. Not yeah. stopping some deal-making, though. Oh, you were going to say something there. No, I was just going to say MasterCard actually did warn that the yeah. coronavirus could hurt it. And uh, MasterCard's a perfect segue into what I think you're about to ask me, because the world of financial <laughs> tech is pretty interesting right now. Absolutely. Inuit buying Credit Karma for a cool $7 billion. What do we make of this deal? Yeah, Interesting Intuit competitor. 
Yeah, Intuit buying Credit Karma really is something that will expand into its financial technology offerings pretty significantly because they obviously own TurboTax, which I think is what most people know Intuit for, but they also bought Mint a while ago, so that gives them a personal finance uh, aspect as well. And now you add Credit Karma so people can monitor their credit for free. That is something that I think makes Intuit an even bigger powerhouse in the world of financial services and helps them go toe-to-toe with MasterCard and Visa, which, by the way, just announced its own financial technology acquisition, uh, you know, not that long ago, buying Plaid for more than $5 billion. So fintech seems to be an area of the market that companies that are getting private funding are going the acquisition route instead of the IPO route. Yeah, we spoke to the CEO early last year and he said exactly that. He said the flexibility that staying private gives you is um, far outweighing the idea of IPOing and clearly he's uh, putting his mouth where or money where his mouth is. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, India-based Oyo, one of the fastest growing hotel chains in the world, not without its challenges though. How its young CEO is planning to expand his empire further, coming up next. Welcome back to First Move. Now, just as President Trump was preparing to fly to India, a multi-billion dollar Indian unicorn was meeting investors here in the U.S. Oyo is a seven-year-old hotel chain that launched in India, raised investment from big funds like SoftBank, and is now operating in more than 800 cities in 80 countries around the world, including China. So that's where I began when I spoke to Oyo's founder and CEO. I asked him what kind of impact they're seeing there specifically as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. Listen in. Coronavirus to begin with is uh, just tough. I mean, um, uh, I, I look back and I, I just feel like uh, for uh, I, my heart goes out for the people in Hubei uh, who are who are uh, fighting um, this this really um, you know unique situation. I believe that the response has been tremendous out there from the people and the communities and the government to try and restrict it as much as possible. The business impact is still very early. It's hard for me to um, uh, share at this point of time. It's too early to judge. But that said, we're working hard to keep our hotels open, including hotels in Hubei, uh, making sure that we can serve the doctors uh, who are visiting um, in, in subsidized or no prices at all. And our partners, they are the real heroes. They are the ones saying, we're going to serve customers and not charge them anything, including near the hospital that just got constructed Is that what's in, happening? In, in 10 days. So the communities are really coming together. Our employees are coming together, not just in China, across the world. Oyo employees, over 25,000 of them across the world, have given away days of salary to make sure that they can send tens of thousands of masks for employees in China. One day salary. A few days, a few uh, days. more than days. And wow. I have given a, a, you know, my months of salaries because we all really feel for our colleagues out there who are really fighting such a, such a novel situation. It's, it's a tough situation, but I believe uh, this is the test of making sure that all of us can stand behind our colleagues in, in uh, such a tough situation. As I mentioned, Oyo is backed by Japan's SoftBank, the Vision Fund, and has an estimated valuation of $10 billion. Now, although the startup's aggressive expansion is raising some pretty big questions, the company's been accused of letting quality slide. The 26-year-old CEO is defending his business strategy. Oyo's revenues on a year-on-year kept growing, but what I'm really here to talk about are our losses. Our losses expanded from minus 24% to minus 35% in the fiscal 2019. Yes. Having said that, 
our India-specific business improved its losses from minus 24% to minus 14%. The reason for that is our company needs to be seen in three different phases. The phase of presence, the phase of gross margin, and the phase of operating leverage. In the phase of operating leverage, we have India and Europe. In the phase of gross margin, we have China and Southeast Asia. And in the phase of presence, we have United States, Latin America, and Japan. So whenever you look at our mature markets, you will see us delivering a strong improvement in our losses and earnings. And that's the path we are leading towards. You know, Masayoshi-san, and of course, SoftBank, a big investor in your company, which is perhaps why you attract so much attention at this stage, suggested that you could have one million rooms in, in Japan. It was a promise. Right now, I think, how many have you got? 7,500. So you've not kept up with the kind of pace that Masayoshi-san was suggesting you could. What's actually going on in Japan? And do you think perhaps you're being pushed too hard? Yeah. By SoftBank. I think, uh, first off, uh, I think Oyo globally manages uh, close to a million rooms now. Yes. Uh, we never established any specific target like that uh, anyway. The only he did. Thing- Uh, I think that's uh, (laughs) conjecture. Uh, uh, But that said, I think the three important perspectives within this are, first off, Oyo is a board-run company. We have very uh, strong representation on our board from Sequoia, Lightspeed, SoftBank, Vision Fund, or an independent director like Betsy Atkins. And our board makes the decisions of our business. If you're successful or if you're not doing well, the management along with the board is responsible to make each of the decisions for that. And I, as a leader of the company, um, am responsible for the direction we're charting for the company. So we are very happy with the results so far and excited about the opportunity in the future. Specific to Japan, it's been less than nine months since we've been operating in Japan. In less than nine months, we operate over 6,000 hotel rooms and 6,000 apartments. Revenue rounded off over $95 million. I think that's a reasonable business to be built in Japan in uh, less than a year. And that's part of the context that you were also uh, uh, talking about, which is the attention that we receive. I think if you look at Oyo's data points, like our revenue and our losses and as a percentage, um, and compare that to a few of the younger companies who are in a high growth mode, you'll find Oyo actually doing much better than uh, a, a few companies. So if someone says to you, you're being pressured, you're being pushed, you're being forced to move too quickly by a big name investor like Masayoshi-san, you say, no, we aren't. I think uh, absolutely. I think I say that our company is a management-run company, and if we grow very quickly, or if we say that accretive growth is a strategy, that is our management and board's decision, and that's the only, uh, for great things, we take credit, and if there is a problem, we take responsibility and accountability for it. Part of the other attention that you've received as a result of, of SoftBank is the unfortunate situation with WeWork, and I have seen some comparisons made, and you're clearly different companies in what you're doing and how you're operating, but... It's an unfortunate comparison. What do you make of it? What's thank your response? You. We are nothing thank like you? we were. No, no, thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that um, it's an unfortunate comparison. But that said, uh, we're nothing like WeWork. Oyo is a different company. Oyo is a company which is focused on building hospitality experiences for millions of customers across the world. Last year, we served 180 million customers. 
In cities like that of San Antonio, we get 40% revenue from OYO's app and direct demand channels. And at the end of the day, it's a company run with a high-quality board, a high-quality management. Not a single management leader of OYO has ever left who ever reported to me. It has five regional CEOs, some of whom who have run public companies and have managed significant amount of shareholder um, uh, engagement and have returned a lot of money to shareholders. So we are operators and we are operators building a business which is uh, growing sustainably over a period of time. What are investors saying to you at this point? Are they nervous? Are they asking you whether it were at peak loss as a percentage of, of revenues here? And are they asking you about, come on, when are you going to be profitable? I think our investors uh, uh, see our business plan and they say you have a good business plan, please execute with that. You're not getting any pressure. We don't uh, have a perspective of saying that jolt uh, and make a quick change in another two or three quarters. I think people see our longer term plan and say that if this is the plan you have, which is a good plan, uh, and you have been delivering basis this for the last few years, so just keep executing behind. And they're comfortable with the speed of uh of the expansion? Uh, they're comfortable with the strategy that we have laid out. Our strategy starts with saying accretive growth, consumer and partner relationships, and stronger governance. To the extent we can follow these three, whatever is the growth, I think uh, we will all be uh, pleasantly happy. I think there's going to be questions about expansion speed. There's going to be questions about more losses potentially coming. You're a private company, so the fact that you're providing information is important to note here too. You're also young. Are you the right person to lead this company as a founder, but now in the expansion and growth stage? Are you the right leader? Sure. I think, uh, I think OYO is not at a stage of expansion. I think OYO is a, state, a stage of building its operations very well as a well-run organization. I think specific to myself, the company has already outgrown me. The company has very solid CEOs running their businesses. These are people who come from investing backgrounds, consumer backgrounds, and running their own detailed businesses right from the top line to the bottom line. And I continue to attract more talent like this let them do what they need to do, due to which not a single of them have left the company till date. And specific to the third bit, I believe that OYO's perspective or the success in the coming years will depend on its ability to look at this focused strategy of making sure that we bring a creative growth, so growth leading to bottom line improvement, consumers and partner satisfaction, and making sure that our governance, like you said, we don't need to tell our numbers, but for three years in a row, we have issued our detailed audited financials, not just consolidated, but even standalone company results at a subsidiary level. So from our perspective, we will not just do this, we will build our board uh, like we brought in Betsy and other independent directors. We're trying to be transparent. We, we, uh, we have uh, been trying to be transparent for the last few years and you will see this quest will continue. The CEO and founder of OYO there. All right, as the stocks market struggle around the world, should ordinary investors be taking a look at alternative assets like crypto? We'll discuss next. So is it a safe haven in stormy markets or something else entirely? Morgan Creek Digital Assets co-founder and partner, Anthony Popolano, joins us now. Great to have you with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. You made two observations about the coronavirus outbreak, not that we want to take away from the tragedy that it represents. But the first thing was mining, because a lot of that yep. happens in China. Yep. Thoughts there? 
big thing is a lot of manufacturing plants are being shut down, and so uh, those companies are losing revenue. But when it comes to mining, computers are doing most of the work. It takes very few humans, so mining's not impacted. And it's also very decentralized across the globe. And so if you get kind of a virus outbreak in one geographic area, uh, it doesn't necessarily affect the mining uh, hash rate nearly as much. Um, and so I don't think that uh, mining is really susceptible to the same things that like a traditional manufacturing company is. Okay, we're going to come back to that, I promise yeah. you. But we'll <laughs> move on to the, the point that I was just making now. And I think the perhaps lack of understanding about how you view crypto, specifically Bitcoin, relative yeah. to markets. A safe haven or a hedge doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be rising when markets go down. Yeah, I think a lot of people confuse safe haven and non-correlation, right? And so a non-correlated asset just means that the value drivers are different, right? You see stocks or uh, other assets in the traditional markets are driven by GDP, interest rates, uh, etc. Bitcoin's not driven by that. Bitcoin is an artificially capped uh, supply asset um, that's driven by demand. And demand continues to increase. And so over time, you expect supply and demand economics to play out. So sometimes you could have... Bitcoin rising when markets rise. Sometimes it could go down. That's positive correlation. It can also be negative. But what you're saying is, remember what the drivers are here and they're different things. Absolutely. Bitcoin over a long period of time has been a non-correlated asset. Um, and what I think is exciting about that is when we see times of global instability, geopolitical uncertainty, uh, things like coronavirus, etc., uh, stocks, bonds, gold, etc., kind of do what you expect them to do. Bitcoin doesn't do that. And so the fact that it doesn't go up is not bad. It's actually, it's a non-correlated asset. So it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do for your portfolio, which is exactly why we think investors should have it in their portfolio. Critics would say, though, that, hang on a second, you're telling me to add it to my portfolio. Surely I want it to be doing sort of the opposite thing when, when yep. markets are going down. Yep. Again, as long as it is preserving your wealth uh, or increasing it, that non-correlation makes it a safe haven asset, right? You don't want to have everything in your portfolio have the same value drivers. Uh, that non-correlation actually reduces the overall risk of the portfolio. Bitcoin has served that purpose for many, many years now. We think that it will continue to do that into the future. So Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO of Ripple, was recently on, and he said what's going to define crypto assets in 2020 is the utility value. Where on that curve between a store of wealth, something that you just hold and the price goes up, versus actually something that you can use Absolutely. is Bitcoin. Because a lot of the criticisms that I read, one, it's energy intensive. It uses a lot of energy. And two, in terms of transaction speeds, it's really slow. Yeah. So first, when it comes to the uh, energy consumption, uh, Bitcoin is using majority renewable energy, right? People are having input into that business, uh, a cost uh, that is the energy cost. And so what they're actually doing is they're going to find the lowest cost energy, which happens to be renewable. So we see things like gas flaring, uh, waste to energy, geothermal, hydroelectric, etc. So I think that's actually driving a lot of innovation. True. I see a lot of criticism of that. Fact. Yeah, yeah. And if you go to China, I mean, that's coal fuel. They are fossil fuel fueled um, energy yeah, so, so there's definitely some not renewable energy, but there's many studies that have now come public where 60, 70, 80 percent of the energy consumption is actually renewable energy. In right? total? In total, yeah. Wow. Absolutely. And then when it comes to utility on the transaction side, last year, the adjusted transaction volume on chain. So this is not exchange traded volume or anything like that. Actually, people sending it for one purpose or another uh, was was over half a trillion dollars. And so what that means is it's bigger than Venmo, Apple Pay, PayPal, et cetera, in terms of transaction volumes. And so people as can- As long as you're not doing it too often, I guess the point. Well, so again, people can complain about transaction speeds, cost, et cetera. But at the end of the day, people are using this more than they're using Venmo, Apple Pay, and PayPal. As 
as a store of wealth, though? Is the, the biggest argument here for Bitcoin the store of wealth? It definitely serves a purpose as a store of wealth. We've seen that do very well. It's up 30% this year. It's up 150% over the last 12 months. But people are also using it to transact and send it for one purpose or another to either businesses or to other individuals. Warren Buffett, very dismissive <laughs> yesterday. He said uh, shorting suitcases, i.e., you know, people laundering yep. money. Perhaps they're not going to use suitcases anymore. They're going to use things like digital assets, Bitcoin specifically. So my two things with Warren, uh, first of all, somebody should tell him that Wells Fargo, one of the uh, companies in his portfolio, uh, recently was found uh, guilty uh, of helping the Sonoa cartel launder a lot of money. So uh, I don't know Fake necessarily- Fake accounts, I guess, would be the only way. I don't have yeah. necessarily proof on anything else, but obviously things like that with Wells Fargo have been a concern. <laughs> and the second thing is I don't really take technology advice from somebody who uses a flip phone or doesn't use email, right? Again, you shouldn't ask me for value investing advice. and so. He he kind of has his domain, which he's the best what in the world What you're saying at. is Warren Buffett doesn't get it, so stay out of it, basically. Uh, people will listen to his opinion because he's one of the best investors of all time. When it comes to technology, though, I think there's better people to listen to you're than Warren Buffett. You're saying he's behind the curve. Seriously behind the curve. <laughs> Talk to me about Sweden, because yeah. they've launched a digital coin, or at least they're testing the testing phases. They are way more advanced, it seems, than, than even... Uh, the Chinese who are clearly pumping a lot of money and investment time yeah. into this. So these central bank digital currencies are all coming. And really what I think people need to understand is uh, all of the central bank digital currencies are simply taking the existing monetary policy and changing the technology form factor, right? Um, what Bitcoin does is it actually is a different monetary policy. It's not a fiat inflationary type model. Um, and so ultimately what we're going to have is a competition of currencies, but it's not going to be a competition on technology. It won't be, are they digital? Or are they not? Everything will be digital. Instead, what we're going to have is a competition of monetary Monetary policy. That's, I think, where we believe that the Bitcoin monetary policy is superior to central bank uh, monetary policies, and ultimately Bitcoin will be the winner uh, and will be the next global reserve currency at some point in the future. We are going to continue this conversation. There's always more to discuss. You're 100,000 core by 2021, <laughs> and we're going to come back to that energy, the renewables. I'm going to do some digging. <laughs> Steve Pompilano there. Thank you so much for joining us Thanks for having on me. the show. All right, uh, let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. Travel giant Expedia announced it will cut 3,000 jobs jobs laying off 12% of its workforce following what it's calling a disappointing year. The online travel conglomerate houses several travel brands, including HomeAwayHotels.com and Orbitz. In an email, executives said they've been pursuing unhealthy and undisciplined growth. Apple will have to pay damages after it lost a decade-long battle over patent infringement. The Supreme Court refused to consider Apple's appeal against an order to pay $440 million to Vernex X, a U.S. firm that holds multiple technology licenses. Now to Asia, where one company is grabbing the attention of Japanese investors. The ride-hailing app Grab, raising $856 million from Japanese bank MUFG and IT services firm TIS. Grab says they will use the money to expand their financial services offerings. All right, let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for U.S. markets at this moment. Of course, following that 1,000-point drop for the Dow yesterday, we are holding in positive territory, though. We've slipped a bit even in the last 15 minutes or so. Right now, higher by some four-tenths of 1% for the Nasdaq. Watch the session today. I think it's going to be an interesting one. Stay with us. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time with The Express. But for now, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. We'll see you tomorrow.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.